Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 4. This morning, we are kicking off a brand new series today entitled The Christmas Quest. And what we're doing in this series is we are studying the last part of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now, maybe you look at that and you'll, you'll read it this morning as we're walking through and you go, what does this have to do with Christmas? And I'll tell you, it has everything to do with Christmas, and it'll be my job over the next four weeks to convince you of that. We'll hit this three times on Sunday morning, this week, next week, and the following. And then, of course, on our Christmas Eve services, we've got one service on the 23rd at 6 o'clock, two on the 24th at 4 and 6 o'clock, and then no service on the 25th. Uh, we'll wrap up there on the on the 24th and then enjoy uh, the next day. There are invite cards, little uh, pocket invite cards. You can grab those on your way out today, whether you want to invite somebody or just remind yourself and uh, and we'll just as a church kind of journey through this season together we're gonna uh, scripturally do that through Acts chapter 4 but we're also gonna have some fun with this uh, and so that's why we got the Christmas tree up out there the only time you'll ever get free drinks from us around here is Christmas and we got hot chocolate out there so someone's like I thought you didn't serve coffee we're still not serving coffee it's hot chocolate okay so uh, you can grab that over the next couple of weeks and, and we're just celebrating together one other fun thing we're gonna do uh, is our team came up with something that we're calling the Christmas quest all right or the redemption Christmas quest some of you you might be local coffee drinkers so you're familiar with the coffee quest where you go to like 20 different coffee shops around Toledo local ones and if you go to all of them then you like get a t-shirt at the end. So we kind of modeled it after that, uh, but since we don't believe in coffee, it doesn't have coffee on there. It's different things. And uh, on the back of it, uh, you will see there's like 20 different options, and uh, they're just fun things. They're broken up into four categories, reading, giving, fun, and togetherness. And if you hit four out of five in each of those four categories, then you win. And while supplies last, uh, whoever turns these in first then uh, gets a, a Christmas Quest t-shirt, all right? So uh, these are really just designed to have fun together as a church, uh, as a family, uh, and then as church family, church friends. Some of them, uh, you'll have to pull in some other people, uh, but just enjoy this. You can grab one of these on your way out. I'll bring it up over the next couple of weeks as well, or you can post some pictures online, and we'll have some fun with it as we celebrate this Christmas season, and what a beautiful season it is. We're today uh, going to look at just like a general overview of Acts 4, 32 through 37. Then I'll get a little more specific the next two weeks, and then I'll give a kind of a summary uh, on Christmas Eve night. And uh, in the summary, what I'll also do is to make sure that those who are joining us, like friends or family or people that you invite, uh, that they'll be all caught up uh, and will culminate it on Christmas Eve and what's going to be a beautiful, beautiful night celebrating together. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, shows this picture of what we believe the world, the quest or the community quest that the world has been on really ever since the beginning. See, uh, we just got done in a series, and in that series, we were kind of teaching through Genesis 2 and showing the picture of how God created this world to flourish and how God created humanity to flourish within the systems that he created, the system of godly men, godly women, godly marriage godly families, and a godly society. Of course, all of this gets broken when sin enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3, but God through his son Jesus comes and redeems all of these things. So the hope of Genesis 1 and 2 isn't all lost because Christ came to redeem it. And what I want to do in this series is talk about how Acts 4, 32 through 37 is a picture uh, of what God originally intended. 
And it's found in the beauty of his church. If I hop back to Genesis chapter 4, we'll see uh, Cain and Abel. These are the first brothers. And Cain murders his brother Abel. And we believe them to be real people. And it was a real story. But they're also a picture or a type of how now brother will turn on brother. Man will turn on man. Humanity will turn against itself. Now, after Cain murders Abel, he is banished. And he goes and forms another culture, another city. And so there's the city of God. And then there's Cain city that is being formed. Now, as the story goes on, because of the fall of man, Cain's uh, city, uh, the alternate city, really becomes the more dominant city, the, the more prevalent city in the world. And uh, the story then of the Old Testament is like the story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, becoming like a counter city within the world. They're God's redemptive plan. Ultimately, that's going to be fulfilled then in a way through God's church. The church today then kind of exists as like a counterculture or a counter city, a church culture, a kingdom culture within the world that we live in. And although we believe that Jesus is king over all the world, we know that for a time that uh, Satan has uh, some reign and some power here in this world. And so we have the the dominant and then we have this counterculture and we're going to see the beautiful picture of it in Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37. And I would say this is the quest of what the world has been looking for. Now, two weeks ago, when we wrapped up our Clear Truth for a Confused World series, um, I, I was talking about society, and I created a, a little metaphor using these cups. And I want to use that as kind of a, uh, a really a tie-in and to show how this act series uh, is not really is not disconnected. It's really part two of the series we just got done with, and then in January we're going to start part three. And uh, what, here's what the cups represented. Uh, I, I proposed that in our nation, in America, uh, that our founding and, and and really most of our history, uh, our country was set up in such a way that operated out of a biblical worldview, and there was this uh, these general ideas and conclusions based on scripture uh, that tied our country together. And over time, uh, what emerged uh, is that people had different ideas, and this actually over time, this is right from the beginning, uh, that within the same biblical worldview, people had competing ideas on how best to govern. And over the last, oh, 100 years or so, um, people, some people thought that the blue pen was better. And other people thought that the red pen was better. And the red penners would look at the blue penners and go, you all are crazy. And the blue penners would look at the red penners and say, I can't believe you would act like that. But a lot of it was based off of a similar worldview. And since all of you guys are so intelligent, you can cut through this, you knew what I was really saying, right? Okay. If you're confused, ask somebody later, all right? Not, not a huge point, okay? I was talking about Republicans and Democrats, okay? Just <laughs> throwing it out there. Okay. All right. Then, oh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, um, what happened is uh, it wasn't the creation of this, but, but it became more obvious uh, that there was a competing worldview. And for, for, for most, most of our country's history, that competing worldview uh, wasn't prominent to the point of um, having massive cultural influence. But over the last 20 to 30 years, a competing worldview emerged. 
And it wasn't just debating about red pen and blue pen. It was a completely different way of looking at the world. And there was a season uh, where the two worldviews had kind of a ceasefire and tried to coexist. But more recently, in the last five to ten years or so, uh, the opposing worldview has now looked at this worldview and said, not only do we not agree with you, but this worldview now calls that worldview wrong, evil, unjust. And this is the culture that we're living in right now, uh, that the, the new worldview, uh, which is built on uh, a godless ideology, uh, looks at the, the biblical worldview uh, and says, your beliefs are, 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 are evil. And, and this isn't surprising because in Isaiah, we're told that the highest form of evil is to call good evil and evil good. And so that's just what we're seeing, uh, fulfillment of biblical uh, prophecy or, or explanation. And, and so now we live in a culture where this worldview just wants to swallow up the other worldview. And if you're curious how to identify this worldview, um, it, really any word that ends in ism, okay, or a lot of them, uh, right now in our common vernacular, okay? And so there's all these isms that this worldview um, uh, likes to throw out as a way to divide and uh, as a way to, to prove their points. Now, what happened in Acts chapter 4 is we see the, uh, the creation of what I think both worldviews want, which is a, uh, a picture of how society or how humans are supposed to interact with each other. And what I want to do in this series is show that the only way to arrive at what the scriptures produce or what we see in the scriptures is to get there through the belief or the biblical worldview. That apart from that biblical worldview, we'll never get the quest or arrive at the conclusion that the world most deeply wants. We live right now, again, in a society that wants to fill our head with lies, saying, no, no, if we just do it this way, we'll get there. Well, the scriptures teach us something else. There are also confused Christians out there who would read Acts 4, 32 through 37 and actually think uh, that it was more in the other worldview than the biblical worldview. And I'll also want to try to kind of dismiss that as well. That's way of setup this morning. In Acts 4, 32 through 37, uh, we see this beautiful picture. Let's read it together. Uh, we'll start in verse 32. It says, now the full number, now the full number. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the, the story of the scriptures, the book of Acts tells the story of the church. In other words, what was formed after Christ ascended into heaven. And that church was about 120 people when Christ originally ascended. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and some bold preaching of the gospel, the church in just a short amount of time by Acts chapter 4 has grown from 120 to uh, probably north of 20,000 or so people. That is rapid church growth. And the church is just growing and growing and growing. And the full number, all of them. And by the way, this group of people, uh, they are uh, culturally diverse. They come from many different languages and areas. Uh, they're, uh, in a sense, religiously diverse in that they had different uh, understanding of Jewish faith um, prior to stepping into uh, this relationship. There's economic disparity. We'll see that in a moment. As I mentioned earlier, they spoke other languages. There's different political persuasions that are going to find themselves in there. And it says, now that full number, all of those people with all of those things that tend to divide us now, all of those people, it says, are going to be of one heart and soul. Now, here's what we can't do. We can't go from now the full number of those 
or the full number, were of one heart and soul. There's uh, two really important words between the full number and them arriving at being of one heart and soul. And here's what it is. It says, now the full number of those who believed, who believed. See, at the heart of all of this, at the heart of Christian community, at the heart of unity, at the heart of the quest that the world has been on is a belief. Now, if I can borrow uh, kind of one of our plays from uh, last series, um, uh, which I will, uh, we, we had confused dis- distortions and then clear truths. And one of the confused distortions right now that exists in our world uh, is this, that inclusive messaging leads to unity. But that's not true. Here's the clear truth. It's exclusive messaging that leads to true unity. See, the confused distortion uh, is that the way to produce unity, the the way to produce the, the community that we want to see is to take our beliefs and to lower them or to flatten them. Let's get rid of the things that we believe that, uh, that we uh, disagree on. But the Bible tells us, Jesus is, it tells us himself, I'll show you in a second, uh, that, that inclusive messaging is not what leads to unity. It's, a, it's an exclusive belief that leads to true unity, to the true community that God wanted to produce that I think the human heart is longing for. Here's, uh, that, that, by the way, is why it is so dangerous that we live in a world that in essence says, believe whatever you want, or it doesn't matter what you believe, believe in anything. And that'll get us to where we want to get to. No, it won't. Look at, uh, I'm going to just read this statement aloud because I want to I read it or say it the way that I wrote it. The belief that the world wants to unify around is the belief that no belief is better than any other belief. The problem is this belief leads to great contradiction in beliefs, destroying any belief that this belief can be a unifying belief. Amen? In other words, believe whatever you want because then we can be unified. will never lead to unity. It will always lead to disunity, and it always has, historically speaking. It says in this verse that they were of one heart and soul. In other words, the unity that they experienced and had wasn't some kind of surface unity or behavior modification. It was something of the heart. It was something of the soul. Let me give an example. If, um, if I said, hey, do, do four people want free lunch today? Right, and four of you raised your hand and said, "Okay, get into the car." Right, and the four of you got into a car, and I said, "Okay, where do you want to go?" And one of you's like, "I want to go to Chipotle," and the other one's like, "I want to go to Chick Fil A." Oh shoot, it's Sunday. Okay, right, and then this is exactly how the conversation would happen. Right, okay, and then somebody's like, "No, it's breakfast. Let's go to Scramblers," and somebody's like, no, "Scramblers, no, let's go to Cracker Barrel." Right, and someone's like, "Cracker Barrel, I'm not over sixty." Right, let's go to right. Okay, I'm just, this is how it would happen. Right, okay. So then you, what you would have is you would have your lunch crowd, and then you'd have your breakfast crowd, and then you'd have your Bob Evans crowd, and then you'd have your local crowd. And then what would happen somebody's uh, energy, right, in the room or in the car would begin to compel other people, but you would still have one holdout. What am I getting at? If I had four of you in a car, you would never get to one heart and soul over food, right? But eventually you would go somewhere. And, event, and one or two of you in the car, even when you got there, you would go there physically, practically. But your heart would be where it belongs. 
and Chipotle. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Actually, I'm, I'm, all, I'm breakfast, all breakfast all the time. See, the world, through government action, through force, through power, wants to throw a bunch of people in a car and say, you will eat Chipotle the rest of your life. Like it. Like it. And that's the world's strategy. And that's not what's happening here. No, what's happening here is a belief that unites people, heart and soul. Jesus taught it to us this way in Luke chapter 12. Now, if I didn't tell you who said these words and I just read them out loud, some people would go, wow, what warmonger said that? Or uh, a modern idea, uh, if I read these words out loud, uh, even to certain uh, like, like modern Christians, right? If I read these words, they go, no, 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 let's take that part out. Look what Jesus said in Luke 12, starting in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. So if anyone's like, I hate sermons that are fire and brimstone, where did somebody learn those? Jesus. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's talking about his death. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. These are Jesus' words. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I know the end gets scary. No one say amen, okay? Might be sitting next to him. All right. What's it saying? Well, here's what Jesus isn't saying. He's, saying. he's not saying you can't be friends with somebody who doesn't agree with you. He's not saying you have to hate the people who don't agree with you. He's not saying you can't have Christmas or Thanksgiving with the people that don't agree with you. What he's saying is that belief in Christ will inevitably lead to division. It will. It will lead to division. And get this. Jesus says, and that's why I came. That's why I came. Why? Because the other belief, the other worldview, the other side sends everyone to hell. That's the unity they'll find. They'll find unity in rejection of God. And so Jesus knew that only by his exclusive message could anyone be saved, and only through his exclusive message could the quest be satisfied, could the community, could the strongest, most beautiful picture of how humans could interact with each other ever come to be. Only the exclusive message of the cross, only the exclusive message of the gospel could actually bring people together. And Acts 4 is this beautiful picture of a season of grace, not really, by the way, seen throughout the rest of the scriptures. This beautiful picture of a season of grace where the gospel is like so alive in these people uh, that they, they give us this picture of what it could look like. 
And there is an element of Acts chapter 4 that is like this idealistic picture before a lot of practical things settle in. And I will talk about some of those things, but it's Christmas. Maybe let's just be a little idealistic for a couple weeks. And look at the beauty of what could be. And what this community, what this community experienced. And may it be a picture to us, right, to not get so um, um, born down in the, in the uh, idealism, right, or to get so narrowed in, uh, maybe to just to let our hearts uh, be captured a little bit by the picture of it and to be challenged and to say, uh, if I profess faith in the same thing that these people profess faith in, is it doing something similar in me? Is it doing something similar in you? The very clear truths that we can pull out of this passage, are they the same clear truths that are now true in you? What are those truths? I just want to point out four this morning. The first one is right here at the end of the first verse. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one, no, there wasn't even that one guy, right? Like there's always that one guy. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, by the way, sometimes the other worldview, they'll look and they'll go, see, look, Look, the, the early Christians, they were communists. They were sharing everything. No, this is the complete opposite. This is of complete voluntary. The, 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 the gospel has changed me so much. The world says this, or the other worldview says this, right? Um, what you have should be mine. What the gospel says is, no, what I have can be yours. Completely different. Completely different. And what did this do? The first thing that the, the, this, this message, this, this all who believed, the first thing that it did is it destroyed selfishness. Destroyed it. And, uh, and selfishness just in each of them, it just imploded. And they became so hyper-focused on each other that they took their eyes off of even their own needs. Now in the scriptures, uh, there's a couple of other examples of this kind of oneness. Uh, and often in the scriptures, you'll see different, you'll see God's principles, they work through all, all in all things. And, and so we'll see different metaphors in the scriptures that actually help us understand other things. And so if we want to understand the relationship that we see here within the body of the church, we can actually look to marriage as a picture of it. See, in marriage, what do we see? That the two become one. That's why whenever we talk about Christian marriage, we always talk about how it is two separate people, right? Individuals entering into uh, a covenant agreement. And when you enter into it, what you're saying is all that I have, all that I am, and in every single possible way, emotional, relational, sexual, financial, all of it, I am taking who I am and, and, and entering it into who you are, and we are becoming one. That's why uh, in any Christian marriage conversation, when you see how one person uh, is withholding something or even pre-marriage, right? And you go, well, I don't want to engage fully with this person. I don't want to engage with them legally or I don't want to gain, uh, engage with them uh, you know, financially or whatever. Well, you say, well, then you're not interested in Christian marriage. Christian marriage is all that I am and all that you becomes one. 
That's why, right, if, if I ever have a conversation with somebody and they're like, well, yeah, like, well, this is how we're going to do it. I say, you, I listen to a lot of Dave Ramsey. He, he always says, you can do whatever you want. You're an adult. Just realize you're not doing my plan. That's what Dave always says. You can do whatever you want. Just don't call it God's plan, okay? You, we don't get to adjust God's plan. God's plan is the two become one, right? And now, now, in the church here, marriage then is just a picture that, that in the church what is going on is, is, is people are stepping into this and, uh, and, uh, and as they're doing it, they're going, wow, we're just one heart and soul. Here, whatever I have, whatever I have is yours. Beautiful. And so the first thing it does is it just, it destroys selfishness. The second thing that it does is you move on to verse 33. It says, uh, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The, the second thing that, that the, the power of this community produced is that it, it actually produced power of testimony. Now, when we think of power of testimony, like coming out of their unity, power of testimony tends to mean one of two things, or, or both uh, in two things. One, it means just the power of proclamation, right? So there's power in their proclamation. The proclamation of what? We're told very clearly of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. The, the second thing that power of testimony means uh, is the, uh, like the testimony or the power of transformation of lives being changed. And so the second thing we see in here is that it produces that power. It produces power of proclamation and power of transformation. And so in the community, right, you're seeing there's this, this, this life change that is beginning to happen, this, this power in the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. And earlier, by the way, if, uh, if you were thinking, well, well, Stephen, why don't you explain when you say all who believed, believed in what? Well, this verse answers the question, believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why or how did this produce power? How did it produce power within the community? Well, I think three ways. Uh, one way that it produced power in the community was this, that the, the proof was in the pudding, okay? I don't even know what that phrase means, but I know it's a phrase, okay? Someone... Wikipedia. All right, okay. The community is there. And, and the power of the testimony was that they're beginning to get into conversations with each other. And as they're getting in these conversations, they're, they're saying, something's changing in me. I've had this conversation with many of you over the last few weeks. And even as we work through that Clear Truth Confused world series that the many of you you're like hey like something happened and like something's happening in my marriage something's happening in the way that i'm seeing myself right something's happening in the way that i'm viewing my kids or my family like 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 it's changed it's working like this stuff works and early on, what was going on in the churches, there was the power of the testimony. Uh, like, like one would say to the other, you're not going to believe this. I used to be like this, but now I'm like that. And then the one would look back at the other and say, no, 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 you're not going to believe it. I used to be like this, and now I'm like that. And then 12 others in the back were like, no, hold on. We all used to be like this, and now we're like that. And then like 500, there were 20,000 of them. 500 in the back were like, hold on. We were all like this, and now we're like that. And as the stories kept building, and people kept sharing, and they're like, we were like this, and now we're like that. And other people on the outside were like, I knew that 
person. He used to be like this, and now he's like that. What is going on? And then they would step into it, and it was like there was like this power. The spirit was like ruminating underneath, like drawing people in. And as they would step into it, it was like it was uh, like it was tangible, like they could feel uh, something in the air, and it would blow into them. And they'd go, "Oh, I get it now. I was like this, but now I'm like that." And the more the stories rang out, and the more people came in, and they're like, this, it's, it's changing me. Power emanated off of this community. But it wasn't, it wasn't just the story of changed lives. That is important, right? It's, it's understanding how was the transformation occurring. See, the, the second reason that there was power in the testimony is that the testimony, or another word we would use for that, the proclamation or the gospel, the message itself was the power. Was the power. And what was the message? The testimony of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. See, the gospel, the gospel is both offensive and defensive when it comes to forming community. And here's what I mean by that. It is both the message of the gospel that unifies us, and it is the message of the gospel that also deflects anything that would divide us. It is the message of the gospel. It is offensive in the sense that uh, when the gospel is proclaimed and poured out, it brings us together. It is defensive in that when the enemy uh, or when the natural state of humanity begins to emerge and want to break in and destroy, it is the gospel that pushes it back out. And so it was the gospel and the message of the gospel that is the power itself. Let me say it more clearly. It was the simple but meaningful proclamation and message that Jesus is alive. And, and what was drawing these people together when they were having these conversations, I used to be this and now I'm that. And then they would look out at the back, right, and go, where did those 3,000 people come? How did you guys end up here? Like, what drew you in? And their uh, conver- uh, conversation would be like, well, we heard uh, something. Like, well, what did you hear? Well, we heard that Jesus, that guy that used to travel all around, the one that got crucified, we heard that he died, but now he's alive? Yes. Yeah, no, I heard it too. He was dead, but now he's alive. And the the group in the back would say, yeah, no, that's why we're here too. Because we heard that they crucified him, that they put the nails in his hands. And that those 12, they saw his body taken off the cross and placed in the tomb. But three days later, he showed himself like he was dead, but now he's alive. And that's it. That's it. And they're like, that's why we're here. And they're like, oh, I thought you were here for the coffee. I thought you were here because you liked Peter's Peter's sermons. No. No, we're not here for that. It's nice. We're not here for the building. We're not here for the community even. That's one of the modern lies. People will say, no, it's all about the community. It's all about the feel. It's all about us being nice to each other. It's all about us sharing with each other. That's what it's all about. No, don't confuse the product with the message. It is the message of the gospel that produces those things. Those are not the things that we're shooting for. It is the gospel. It is the simple fact he was dead, but now he's alive. That's what it is. That's what it is. 
And so this group of people, they're just, the message is going out. He was, a, he was dead, but now he's alive. And people are just like, all right, I'm into that because I've never seen that before. And, and so all these people started joining in together, and there's power. And it's just like ruminating from this place. And as the power was going out so much, as it was just on the move, as it, the message was being spread, he was dead, but now he was alive. The powers of this world do what the powers of this world want to do because they want to suppress the truth. And so they started coming up with their own strategies to make sure that the power wouldn't go out. But of all of them, there was one who kind of understood what was really going on. His name was Gamaliel. And he was a, he was a leader of the gang, okay? And he was an intellectual. He's a, a well-known, well-understanding guy. And, uh, and this guy right here, Gamaliel, he, uh, he showed up and he's telling the truth suppressors. He's like, guys, uh, I need to warn you about something. And what I want to warn you about is you're trying to suppress this message right now that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. But I need to tell you that uh, if this message is from God, none of your efforts are going to work. They're not going to work. And, uh, and so Gamaliel's like, and he actually gives them some examples. He goes, hey, remember that guy? He emerged, but he was just of man, and so it didn't work. And then he goes, remember that guy? He, he was of man, right? Uh, and so it gained a little bit of traction, but then in the end, it faltered, and it didn't work. He says, that's what happens. Any message from man will fail. To go back to these points right here, any effort by the world to create this will eventually fail. That's why the systems of this world, all of the isms and all of the theories and all of the things that they're forcing down our kids' throats because they're trying to create this will never work. You only get these results if the gospel is the input. It's the only way to do it. Let me draw a comparison, because right now, right, uh, we need to be reminded of Gamaliel's encouragement, and the encouragement is this, that if our message and if the church's message is, is of God, then every effort of the world to stop it will be null and void. If our message is from him, the, the world can try whatever they want. They can try to persecute, and they are. They can try to prosecute, and they are. They can try to suppress. They can try to oppress. Doesn't matter. If our message is the gospel, it will not be stopped. Okay? It will go. It will carry the day, and it has for 2,000 years. In fact, we often see that the more the truth suppressors, the more the powers of this world try in their own man-made efforts to suffocate the, suffocate the gospel, the more they try, the more the gospel tends to just go on out. That's why if you ain't excited about what you're seeing, you're missing something. We've been praying for revival for, for two years here as a church, and if you thought we were going to get there, apart from the enemy trying a little bit harder, you were wrong. But the harder the enemy tries, the more I get excited that revival's actually coming. All right? This is what we have seen. I thought I had another point. Okay, all right. So it is the gospel that unifies us. It is also the gospel that stems off, right, all division. 
And it is the gospel then that begins to break in that when our human tendencies and our, 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 our human desire for selfishness, our, our human desire to divide instead of uh, to come in through the gospel, all of that kind of stuff, right? Uh, it is the gospel that pushes those things back out. It, this is why Paul was so adamant that the gospel never be changed. Galatians chapter 1, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, in fact, I would say that when I was a 22-year-old, like just starting out in ministry, this was a passage that God gave me, uh, um, not just to me, obviously, it was in here. This is what he pointed out to me um, that, that, that I've gone back to over and over. It's why I will say also by over the last two years, when we have seen the world, and when I say the world, I mean even Christians and, 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 uh, and churches, when we have seen um, churches and Christians begin to sway, I think this is one of the passages that we as a team just went back to over and over uh, because it is so clear. Let me read it to you. Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. One of the tragedies of our day is that uh, whereas the, the, the church used to be unified in its belief over the last three, we've seen this for 30, 40, 50 years, but more and more in the last three, five, ten years or so, we have seen people who were firmly entrenched in a biblical worldview that profess the name of Christ, that have been traditionally evangelical and orthodox believers, begin to partner with the other side, okay? And I will tell you this, much of the evil that we have seen in the last two, three, five, and 10 years exists because the church failed to unify and stand for what was right. And had the evangelical church actually stood in one with unity and a backbone, much of the evil that we have seen wouldn't be happening, and Paul knew this. This is why he said this. But even if we, Paul's like, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let me translate that into modern language. Even if a pastor that you used to follow and love, even if a denomination that you used to adhere to, even if a church that you grew up in, even if a guy who you have all of his books and you've downloaded his podcast, even if him or her or them or they use all the pronouns, I don't care. Even if that person begins to change the gospel, let them be cursed. We have no allegiance to denomination. We have no allegiance in this way to a single person. Paul at the end says, we have allegiance to one thing, to Christ and Christ crucified and his true gospel. Amen. That's it. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be cursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. And then in verse 10, Paul settles something for us. Because what we do now is we have a lot of pontificators and a lot of talking heads that want to explain why they're distorting the gospel of Christ. And they want to give all of these reasons on why they're distorting the gospel. And often they're rooted in a false sense of understanding 
understanding love, a false sense in understanding generosity, a false sense in understanding how true community is formed. And so they'll make their statements and then they have these catchphrases and these words. I'll explain some of these over the next couple of weeks. Well, this is why we're doing things. Oh, this is why we're saying these types of things. Galatians 1.10 solves it once and for all. He says this, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The reason anyone distorts the gospel, the reason anyone abandons the, the proper view, the truthful view, the biblical view, is because they have decided that man's opinion is more important than God's. That's it. That's it. They want to please men. They want to please culture. They want to please cancel culture. They want to please whoever. And friends, we have always have to be at a place that says, I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what anyone thinks. As long as we are true to this, we have one audience, and it's him. That's it. That's it. It is the only message. It is the only way. It is the only path to seeing and to solving the quest that humanity has been on. And falsely and sadly, many, many have fallen to think maybe there's a different way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is. His truth. This thing in all of its fullness. And if Christ, I've said this before, if Christ is the way and the truth and the life, then all other ways are not the way. They are lies and they lead to death. Okay, number three. Third thing. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had made. I know so many of us, we want to we wanna run and we want to go, okay, I know, but what about the abuses and what about this? And, and listen, Paul addresses those later, and I will address those later on in our series because Paul does circle back and he goes, okay, let's correct some of the abuses of this scenario, and, and, and that's rightful, and, and we'll talk about what is true biblical generosity look like so we don't buy into the lie. But for like two minutes, can we just be compelled by the beauty of this? That 20,000 people looked at each other and said, hey, what I have is yours. That if we follow the husband and wife metaphor, if a husband was living like a prince and a wife a pauper, we would look and go, something's wrong there. And in the church, if one member was living like a prince and another didn't have their needs met, we would say, something's wrong there. And that there was something so beautiful that this belief in Christ, not because it was forced, not because anyone told them to, unleashed, unprecedented generosity. Every need was met. As a church, this is why we draw our belief, and if you hang around here long enough, you'll hear me say this, that the church is first first and primary financial responsibility is to take care of the needs within its own family. First, more important, right, than adding on, more important than making cooler, more important than hiring more, more important than uh, whatever else 
is making sure that every need is met in the church family. I would add this on. Even more important than sending money across the ocean, and I'm not opposed to that, is making sure that we take care of each other first. It's why for six years, when, when, when money comes into our church, we set aside literally 10% of it, right? And we put it in a different bank account to make sure that it is always there, to make sure that if anyone ever asks and there's a legitimate need, that we have an opportunity to respond to that immediately. And friends, I think it would be, uh, it would be good for us and it, and it would be good for the church. And I dream for a day when the American church returns to this value and that churches all across the country would uphold together that the single greatest thing the church could do would begin to use its money to take care of each other. That we would shift our priorities away from some of the things that we have gotten caught up in. And honestly, God help us where we have where our buildings, our salaries, our stages, and everything else have become more important to us than taking care of the needs of the family. If we did that in our immediate family, um, <laughs> Jesus would call us worse than an unbeliever. Let me just translate that another way. How is the church any different than any other organization if it can have all of those things and not take care of the needs within its family? It isn't. It will be different because it prioritizes that first. And so we must, we must. I've said this before and I get it. It's a big animal now, right? Um, I had just read a book called Slaying Leviathan, right? And it, 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 it feels like that. Um, but, but in theory, let me just say this, and I've said this before. Much government exists because the church does not. Much government exists because the church does not. And we can't affect it all. And we can't change it all, but we can start here. We can start with each other. And we can start to, to let the belief that Jesus was dead and now he's alive begin to work in us in that way. Fourth thing, fourth thing. And by the way, the world's tactics at this through, through forced um, uh, through, through making things happen, through taking from one to give to another, this is, that will never produce what this is producing. Never. This will not produce one heart and soul. This will not produce my, what I have for you. Next. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I think this is a really intriguing way to end the, 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 the passage um, because one thing it tells us is this, um, that you don't lose your, individu your individual nature or your individuality by stepping into the church. There's a difference between destroying selfishness, right, and destroying self. So, so this guy, he still has a name. People still have a name. People still have an identity. People are still who they are, but, but their selfishness has been destroyed, right? It's different. In many of the theories of the world, right, uh, it, it's like you lose yourself in, in the sense of like you no longer have a name. You're just a number. That's not what's happening here. The, 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 now, there's this one guy named Joseph, right, and, uh, and then we're going to find out they call him Barnabas, and then his name means son of encouragement, and that's also teaching us that encouragement is not just verbal. Encouragement is verbal 
and active. It's action. James, Jesus' brother, is going to say it like this later. He's going to say, what good is your faith if it has no works? What good is your conviction? What good is your perceived morality? What good is your adherence to, um, uh, to some biblical ethic, right, if it doesn't lead to any action on anyone else's behalf? What good is it? Now, the fourth thing we see here is that this, and we see this here embodied in Joseph or Barnabas, uh, that, that, that this, this belief motivates the highest level of self-sacrifice. It does. It motivates people laying down themselves, right, uh, and then sacrificing one for another uh, in ways that hardly make sense that they're so tied together, heart and soul, right? That, uh, I mean, very practically, Barnabas just looks and he goes, I don't really need that. And so he sells it. Uh, and, and I will explain some of the structure of all of this, why they were doing that next week. But he's just like, I'll just sell it and I'll give it to everyone who's in need. Motivates high self-sacrifice. And so here we have these, these four traits, right, that we see here in the first church. From back to front, right? It motivated high sacrifice. It released unprecedented generosity. It, it, it changed human life, right? It changed their lives, and it destroyed their selfishness. And maybe you, you hear me this morning, and you go, okay, but how is this possible? Or, yeah, like, I'm kind of, this sounds incredible. What do I need to do? What do I need to do, Stephen? And I need to tell you that this type of community is never formed because people start with the question, what do I need to do? This type of community is always formed because people have understood the question, what was done for me? And for any of us to ever experience truly anything like this, it will not be because we become so disciplined or systematic that we know exactly what to do. It will be because we are so overcome so moved, so changed, where selfishness is so destroyed in us. Why? Because we realize and see most clearly what was done for us. The quest of Jesus moving from heaven to earth, where selfishness was never even present in him, but yet he showed us over and over how to become even increasingly selfless. Laying down any attempt at an earthly crown, going on his knees to wash his disciples' feet, going to the cross to lay down his life. Jesus was so hyper-focused on you that he forgot to consider even his own needs. That the message that was powerful was this very story he was dead, and now he was alive. That it, it released a, a generosity never seen at that point and never seen since. That Christ gave up not just some land, not just some stuff to meet a material need, but Christ actually gave up the splendor of heaven. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, in the story in Acts, they had all physical things in common because the rich gave up for the poor. But in the spiritual story, Jesus gave up the riches of heaven so that we could be held in common with him. And then finally, Finally, this gospel motivated the highest level 
of individual sacrifice ever. That Christ laid down his very life, his very breath, his very breath, and gave it to each of us to meet us in our place of need. The scriptures have a term to describe everything I've described. It was mentioned in the text, a great grace, a great grace. See, all of this is only possible because a group of people begin to understand to the deepest levels the beauty of grace. And the distortions of grace are varied. We begin to think we earned it. We begin to think we deserved it. We begin to think God owed it to us. We begin to think we have enough to merit something before him. And the reminder of grace over and over and over is our complete hopeless and helpless state, but that Christ came and did it for us. Paul, later, I quote it a lot because it's my favorite text, because it's the one that got me, that changed everything, writes it to us in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience in whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And look at when he did it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then, then in verse 10, then we ask what we should do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And let me be very clear this morning. Where selfishness still exists, where there is still transformation that needs to occur in you, where you still hold tightly instead of release freely, where you're still motivated to self-preservation instead of self-sacrifice, it is because grace has not yet fully invaded. And so let it invade. Let it break through every part of you. Let grace come in and flood in. Be reminded again and again and again your state before him and how he did everything to rescue. How he did the work and you just received it. And the more you understand that, the deeper you understand that, and the deeper that we all understand that, the closer we will get to what we see in Acts chapter 4. That's the quest that we're on. Let's pray. Father, we long for a day 
season of grace like that first church experienced. And so may grace flood our hearts more and more. And yes, Lord, we want to be instructed on what to do and how to do it and what would be required of us. Oh, but may that always come from a place of being floored by grace. And so we gaze again at the beauty of the cross where you took it all on, where you did the work we could never do for ourselves, where you died and now you live again. And may that message, may it break in, may it change every part of who we are, and may it form for us what it did for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.